All right, this meeting is being live streamed. So we are live on YouTube at the moment. Hello, everybody. Karen here from ATP Media. This is another session in the Inner Sanctum with our very spe special guest teacher, Jeff Granville. Welcome, Thanks, Jeff. Oh, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you and your group. It's so beautiful to see you again. I think you've been busy since I spoke to you last. So Jeff was on the show. How many years ago? Like a year ago? Yeah, like that. Was, um, going on too. I was going to make mention of that and give you a shout out because you were the first person to reach out to interview me um, when we started the Higher Self Expo. Oh, okay. And, and that's what started kind of all the wheels in motion and ended up with me with my own podcast and, and, uh, and away we went. So thank you for the inspiration. Ah, you've got your own podcast now. I didn't know that. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I, what are you talking about? What are you doing on your podcast? The name of the podcast is The Physiology of Our Divinity. Oh. And I teach the workshop of biohacking, the physiology of our divinity, how to create a state of receivership for divinity to enter our life on a moment to moment basis. And um, yeah, so I do the podcast is a live zoom that I post on Facebook every week at 11am Pacific. And I have a live guest every Friday. And then I post the recording um, when zoom makes it available. And I'm getting ready to do what you're doing is switching everything over to just live everything goes immediately to YouTube because it's a live show unedited, just like what you're talking about. Okay, so you do that on your uh, on your YouTube channel? Yeah, um, it's posted on my YouTube channel after. I'm not going live YouTube yet. I'm oh, doing not. it live. Mm -hmm. So I post it on my Facebook page, Jeff Granville, and then I'll show the link for the live event so you can be in audience like this. And then I also record it as you do so it can be posted later. Oh, beautiful. I will all have yeah. to tune in. We'll all have to tune into that. And we've got a few more people there jumping online now. Hi, yeah. Michelle. Hi, Sally. <laughs> yeah, I also wanted to mention too, Corinne, that, um, that the we do have a YouTube channel called Mindful Presence, and it's spelled like GIFs with the TS at the end. And um, so we do have our own YouTube channel. So all of the library of the last um, year has, has been on there, is on there. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. And I let me I, let me read your bio so that people that don't know about you and because um, as I said we discussed your story in quite some detail on the show, but we'll go over it again today for the live audience and for people to ask questions. And before we started recording, Eris asked that um, you do a couple of um, mindful exercises with us for specifically for physical pain. So we'll do that again today too. Yeah. So when Jeff Granville faced a parent's greatest nightmare. Little did he know that a calm inner mental practice of visualizing and breathing or what is seen today as mindfulness would save a life. On December 30th, 2014, Jeff's four-year-old son at the time, McCoy, suddenly became very ill during, uh, and during medical procedures to save his life, Jeff used mindfulness to soothe and care for McCoy as he was going through spinal taps and other invasive procedures after mccoy was diagnosed with a rare form of t-cell leukemia jeff became a mindfulness practitioner and formed the non-profit organization mindful presence as you say spelt like present a gift to bring the gift of mindfulness cohesive 
co coherence and controlled breathing to pediatric patients, families, and care providers. I think that that audience is spreading now, isn't it? Like you're just bringing it to everybody, bringing it to the world. Yeah, yeah that's really, really true. Um, we were able to go into Seattle Children's Hospital in the Ronald McDonald House prior to COVID. But once COVID hit um, over two years ago, we were just starting to do our live workshops at the Center for Spiritual Living here in Seattle. We do like tomorrow, I have a live workshop uh, at the Center for Spiritual Living. But then when COVID hit, we had to go virtual, like everybody had to modify their game plan, right? Um, right. So during that time, I became a mindfulness practitioner and coherence coach at the Center for Healing Neurology in Seattle, treating some of their most stuck patients with autoimmune disorders. And um, so it really did. When COVID hit, instead of us withdrawing, we just absolutely took off and went public for the general population. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. And what's the response been? Uh, have you had a lot of response? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, as our access to pediatric patients has been diminished, the need out in the general population and the access to the general population through Zoom and other live formats has increased exponentially. So um, I've had the opportunity to visit with some amazing care recipients mm -hmm. and um, practice my craft. And mm -hmm. it is extremely rewarding. It's um, very straightforward. It's very simple. It's easy to follow and it's scientifically backed. It's part of our innate ability to biohack the physiology of our divinity to get to that zero point of receivership. And that's the core. I mean, it's like when the center for healing neurology refers somebody to me, I might not even get their last name. Even though I have access to all the client files, the medications they're on, I have access, I'm an actual practitioner in their practice, I don't look at them um, until maybe later on. I want to hear the story first from the person so they mm -hmm. feel, you know, if, if you read notes in a file and you meet somebody, you're going to have a predisposition towards what you think you can do. Right. And that is the very wrong approach to meet somebody in their illness, right. you want to really hear them. And I've had many of them, if not all of them say it's the first time they've felt felt, and which is one of our most innate needs requirements to be a human, the way we're wired in our brain, and with our heart connecting to other hearts, we are not complete without other people. I mean, we can go in isolation and be a monk and work on ourselves all we want, but there are certain parts of our physiology that are just made to be shared and they become exponentially powerful with two people like mutual coherence or social or group coherence. So it's extremely important to have that sense of being heard, feeling seen and feeling felt. Ah, uh, Jeff. I tell you what, I've got the tissues. I've replenished my tissues <laughs> today. I'm sure I'm going to be crying. Yeah, I love that. I just want to point out too, because that came up prior to us going live, is that, you know, when we have tears of joy, you know, you think of that term, tears of joy. And if you look at like David Hawkins' book, Power Versus Force, he has a consciousness scale. And there's only two things above love on the vibratory consciousness scale. And that is joy 
and then enlightenment because joy is love in action, right? Love is draining down your cheeks. It's love. It's not sadness. It's love and compassion. So tears of joy is love in action. Oh, uh, mm. absolutely. I have to say, I don't really cry over sad things anymore. I only cry over things that move me. Like I can yeah, see yeah. sad things. I can meet sad things. I can meet horrific things with love and understanding today. But when I feel moved into compassion or moved into joy, yeah, I'm balling. <laughs> I'm balling. Yeah, but um, I love the way you use your language, you know, like um, hacking what did you say? Hacking the biodiversity of divinity. How did you, the thing, the way you put this uh, is just beautiful. I have to say, I think this conversation is a conversation I have on every show, but you have a way of bringing the conversation of spirituality and divinity into such a scientific perspective. I love it. And that's something that the mainstream can really digest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things that anybody that's on a spiritual path or religious or awakened or connection with Mother Gaia or, or whatever it is, we have an innate knowing and call it your resonance of your heart. It connects with your soul. That's the truth meter. You know, you, you have a sense of that is truth. And then we have things we experience. You know, we know them to be true. It's the physiology of knowing. And it's, I, I work with a beautiful um, PhD, Dr. Jo Dr. Joseph Delaney in the UK. And he's like, you know, we, we know the biology of belief. Bruce Lipton has made it famous, the biology of belief, but we can create biology beyond our beliefs. And I said, wow, because I'm working on the physiology of knowing. And he immediately was like, oh, your biology beyond your beliefs is the physiology of knowing. Wow. And when you actually know something to be true, not just I believe it to be true, or I have faith in that, when it's experiential, or it really resonates with that truth meter inside all of us. And we get that expansive feeling. And that's one of the things I tell with kids is there's two modes, fear or love, fight or flight or rest and digest. And it's also expansion or contraction. So just being aware of your body and how that feels will give you the right answer every time. And it's like kinesiology, muscle testing, your body, your heart knows the answer before your mind can even think of the equation. Incredible. Okay. I've got a question. We, I haven't even finished your bio yet, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and to go into your story, we'll go into that in a bit, but so the physiology of divinity, is that what you called it? The physiology yeah. of knowing. Yeah. Okay, so here's a question that's come up for me. Can you access divinity through shifting your physiology or do you need to access divinity and able to shift your physio? Like, which can you do both? Yeah, I, I think it's both. I mean, it's like if you think of the mind, you know, the mind is not a product of the brain. The product, the mind is a, is consciousness being filtered through a brain and through a body. And we get thoughts can come up from divinity. We can have a feeling, a sensation in our body, and then we'll think about it and it'll trigger the thoughts to try to describe the feeling. And other times we'll have a thought in our head that creates a feeling. So it can come from both directions. I look at it, you know, just like, um, the electromagnetic field of the heart 
is a toroidal field. It's like the twisting donut where it goes out, comes in one way and out on the other, and then it returns just like a black hole is not H-O-L-E, it's W-H-O-L-E. What Everything being sucked into blackness is being emitted out the other side, and that's production you know, from the black hole, the center of that uh, living system. Um, so we can intentionally, that's why my term biohacking, the physiology of divinity, is by doing it, by understanding our innate physiology, the way we're made, if we understand how we're made, and that's where the science buy-in is so important. Like I was going to say, you can experience things and know it, but then when you can hear science that's backed up with testing and makes sense, it adds to the buy-in and that adds to that knowing, right? So when we know that we can breathe a certain way, position our body, get comfortable with mindful intent, have conscious breathing. We can slow our heart down. We can make the autonomic swing go into homeostasis, which shuts down the triggered left brain fight or flight loop of, you know, I need to get that because I don't have this. Um, it brings us centered. And it literally, if you want the science about it, is that like Jill Bolte-Taylor teaches in her book, Whole Brain Living, from her original My Stroke of Insight, um, when the left brain shuts down, all of the energy goes to the right brain, which is your divinity. Your right brain is divinity. Your left brain is digital, analog, 3D, fight or flight, you know, ego. So when we shut down one side, it powers up the other. Like she says, the brains together, two separate brains, not hemispheres, they burn the equivalent of 20 watts, like a dim light bulb in a refrigerator. Well, if one shuts down like her left brain did when it bleed, when it bled, then all the power went to her right brain. And she was like, how am I ever going to fit down in that little tiny body? She was having an out of body energy experience with her right brain. And so to answer your question, if we know that about ourselves and it's innate in all of us, then there are certain things we can do intentionally, consciously to set up that state of receivership for divinity to come in. I mean, it's in us all the time. We are of divinity, but we lose that connection to it because of our thinking mind, because of our left brain triggers. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I guess that I'm thinking uh, what you're doing is you're using the physiology. Okay, so let's get present to the physiology. Breath. So breathing is the physiology. Yep. And then I'm going to change my physiological state. And when I change that state, I'm going to access more of my divinity. Let's call it divinity or um, super consciousness, like there's conscious, subconscious, super conscious, uh, yep. which I think all you know spiritual teachers are talking about. And then there is like, okay, I'm going to sit to meditate, not necessarily looking at the physiology, but just looking at the mind. And I'm going to focus the mind or try and quiet the mind. Um, again, accessing that super consciousness perspective. Like there's so many perspectives we can look at this. Um, years ago, I did a healing course and we looked at brain waves, the brain wave of conscious thinking, memory, and then meditation. And the theta brain wave is that brain wave. You, you know all this, like the brain wave 
of REM sleep, rapid eye movement. I've had a couple of healers on the show that when they're in that, their eyes flicker like crazy and people think they look crazy because their eyes are flickering. But it's just like your physiology naturally shifts like the eyes and the breath when you access a certain state. I remember when I was learning all this stuff, we were being taught to breathe in a certain way. And I found trying to force the Hara breath, you know, the Hara breath where you start to breathe really like it's like it's just it sounds like snoring, basically. You sound like you're snoring. And yet I found that when I was working on people energetically and I would just drop into that state, my that breath would start happening spontaneously. I didn't have to make it happen. It just happened. Okay. So, yeah, but we can sort of come of it from a couple of different angles, can't we? Absolutely. And, th- and if you look at different cultures throughout history, they have different modalities to get to that zero point and they call mm-hmm. it something different. Um, Japanese call it Mushin. Ancient Hawaiians call it Ho'oponopona, mm-hmm. you know, getting to that zero point. And there's different modalities and just like everything. And, and it's, it's so important for us on the show and anybody we work with or play with is that language is one of the most limiting features of human existence. The minute we try to define with a human word, what we're experiencing in divinity, we limit it. And, and anytime one word doesn't resonate with somebody, but it resonates with somebody else, then that causes a dissonance between two humans. I mean, look at the history of earth. I mean, more deaths are caused by religious wars than everything else combined. You know, we can agree on 99% of how, of what we're worshiping, but we can kill each other over the 1% we disagree on. So a little bit of dissonance goes a long ways, you know? So if we remove that, if we forgive that, if we look at everybody in humanity as like, I'm having an experience and I'm using my words to the best of my ability to express what it is I've experienced, then maybe we won't be so picky about the words that are chosen to do it because it's universal. If somebody wants to call it God or the universe or, you know, whatever quantum physics, or if they, if I enter a room with a patient and family and they're atheists, I can start from the mud puddle if they want. I can, you know, if, if we want to start talking about that, we can talk about that. I, I don't need the labels in order to do what we do. It's just innate to all of us. But um, yeah, the, the physiology, we can create a state of receivership. It's a state of being where we are literally open energetically and open physiologically because it's like literally a radio that we're tuning into a frequency and we're amplifying it like the the brain is the dial of what station to go to and the heart is the volume and amplification of the signal the power that goes out like joe dispenza says a thought is electric but a feeling is electromagnetic so if you visualize a future you want and feel it with gratitude, it'll draw that to you. It'll draw the two of you together. And that's the secret behind the law of attraction and everything that came out of that way of belief. Joe Dispenza says, a thought is electric and a feeling is electromagnetic. Yeah, because you measure your heart frequency with an electroencephalogram. Mm -hmm. It measures electrical frequency. Mm -hmm but you measure the heart with a magnetoacetylogram, which Mm -hmm. is electromagnetic, and it can actually be 
read from across the room, Mm -hmm. just like the EEG stickers go on your head. They're not probes going into your brain. They're picking up the frequency on the outside of your skull. Mm -hmm. So the magnetoencephalogram can be, can measure the heart frequency from like eight feet away. It goes on forever, like a radio signal, but we only have the means to measure it from eight feet away. Right. Yeah, I would tweak that a bit. Bless Joe Dispenza. He's amazing, doing incredible work in the world. But I reckon that the emotion or the feeling is the evidence of the magnetic field. Like that's how we are interpreting that magnetism, that electromagnetic field. We're feeling it as emotion or feeling, Um, you know, my feelings. When I say feeling as opposed to feeling touch, like my feelings, yeah, it's the way we're where um we're interpreting it where we're feeling the magnetic energy of the thought yeah the electromagnetic energy of the thought yeah anyway but you're right words are a very poor thing to try and describe this but what i love about what you're doing jeff is that you are using words that are bringing the spiritual wisdom a lot of the stuff that we talk about like i'm talking about on the show about the consciousness of ets and what they can do like it's incredible what they can do beam me up scotty you know walk through walls like the physics the physics and you're bringing the sort of physics of spirituality to a mainstream audience and in order for them to access divinity really for them to access their own divinity and when we do access that divinity we get that you know i'm i'm i call it my mob you get that download from your your spirit guides who live in that frequency who have you know that Instead of the mental thought that's based in programming, subconscious programming, collective programming, which is based predominantly in fear, (laughs) then we get to access divinity, which is based in love, like you say, and we just have much clearer, more enlightened thoughts and we can act on that, you know, both personally and collectively. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's like like I said, many, all cultures had a way to get to that physiology. Exactly. And my, my exposure, I mean, it's like the gift that I downloaded in the moment of need for my son was the gift I needed to be the dad he needed me to be. And for him to have the courage and strength to do what he needed to do. So that download is what I pass on that gift is what I pass on to other people. And I think that's the intention, you know, is to get in that state of divinity of surrender. And it's a, it's like we talked about thoughts coming from emotion or, or thoughts create emotion. It's a two-way street. And I think divinity is that same way is like, we can be approached by divinity or we can set up a physiology to call out for divinity, to make a home for divinity, to, to, for that connection. So like we can go out in nature and you can hike up to a Vista view and go be awestruck. Ah, and you, you know, awe is the vowel sound of God and you're leaning to the right. You're in the right brain of divinity, your heart opens and you have divinity, a divinity moment, a divine moment. Okay, and it's reached us from the outside, but it's by effort we took to get to a place where we'd be struck by divinity. And what we do with the breath work, like many other cultures teach, breath is the gateway. Breath is the gateway. It's inspiration. It's called inspiration for a reason. You know, uh, inspiration is the breath that fills the soul, right? So 
Um, that's what we do. It's a very simple practice. And I do it with people who have just received diagnosis, people who are stuck in a medical emergency crisis. And it's trying to create calm during chaos, be mm. the eye of the storm. Right. For many of us that follow these workshops and these practices, we have practiced yoga and breath work. And, you know, we're not in a emergency environment, but the world itself can be a very triggering environment and right. stress mm. not treated as toxic and chronic as disease, right? So it's, it's all about um, being mindful and creating a sanctuary space through your breath work, that divine moment is a sanctuary space. And then we want to carry that into the world in every heartbeat and every step we take. Um, unlike, like I, I love meditation. Uh, it has many, many followers and practice. I love it. But many people will look at go meditation as going into a room for an hour, quiet, dark, chant at a candle for an hour or whatever your practice, and you're trying to cure the ills of the last 23 hours. So you go through a hectic world for 23 hours, and you try to fix it in one. And then you go right back into it the next day where mindfulness and a state of coherence, and a state of physiology, you know, of divinity is something that you carry with you, like the Japanese do with Mushin, and the ancient Hawaiians do with Ho'oponopono. They, everything they encounter is compared to zero, right? So they know if it's a human a winding, a human experience, or an experience of divinity. Ah, yes, absolutely. You know, I was um, having a conversation on the show last with the gorgeous Larissa Stowe, who who started a, a kirtan, like a rock and roll kirtan band called Shakti Tribe that has gone quite viral. And I asked her why she chose that genre instead of like other devotional ways, other to bring a devotional message through music. And she said September 11. And what we started talking about is like when there is crisis, it hones our focus as to how we serve this world. Like because there are so many people out there going, who am I? How can I serve this world? How can I make a difference? And, you know, they're asking me, they're asking other teachers, they're asking, asking, asking. And I'm like, life's going to show you sooner or later life will show you in the form of a dramatic moment much like you experienced with McCoy that like you said in that moment you kind of found you know who you are and what you're doing in this world but do you want to go over what did happen with McCoy for people that don't know oh yeah um I'll go there for you um <laughs> um yeah um, McCoy was four years old. Um, it was December 30th and his birthday, he would be turning five in February. So he was almost five. And he had what the doctors thought was a local virus and his face was swollen, but they said it was too far for antibiotics. So after Christmas, I loaded him in the car and went to my mom's house here in Western Washington and North of Seattle in Anacortes and um, laid him down in the middle of the night and he struggled for his breath. He was having a really hard time laying on his back. And the only way that I could calm him was laying on his side. And I took him to the local doctor and they did chest x-rays and thought he had double pneumonia. And then the radiologist looked at the films routinely later that night and called and said, the doctor called and said, 
it's not double pneumonia. Your son has a chest mass. He's, you know, he's four. And so they said, if, if we don't get approval for a CAT scan, you need to take him to Seattle Children's. So we didn't get approval. The next day, I took him to Seattle Children's Hospital, took him through the emergency room doors at about noon. And at one o'clock, they had taken a lab draw and pulled me outside his room and said, your son has leukemia or lymphoma. His white blood cell count is over 400,000. But the problem is we can't treat him. We have to be able to pull spinal fluid to see if the new leukemic blast, the new leukemic cells have passed the blood barrier because it's a law, you know, a law, AMA law, FDA law, uh, Western medicine law to, you can't treat with chemotherapy until you've tested the spinal fluid, because if it is in the spinal fluid, they go one way with radiation. And if it's not, they go chemotherapy. So they won't give treatment without spinal fluid. And they said, the reason we're stuck is we we're oncology wants to give chemo, but they can't do it until surgery pulls spinal fluid and surgery says we can't pull, pull spinal fluid until chemotherapy brings the swelling down because he was so lymphoblastic. He had so many tumors around his throat and his heart and his superior vein that blood could go to his head, but not return to his body. So his head was swollen. His eyes were actually swollen shut. And then his airway was the size of a pencil lead. And they said it was like his heart was beating inside a hundred rubber bands. So if they tried to sedate him at all for the procedure, he would lose cardiorespiratory tone and flat and die. And they said, we've seen you help him through a lab draw and an IV placement and oxygen mask. When he was having difficulty, you were able to talk him through it. So we think the only thing we can do is get permission for you to enter the surgery room and try to talk him through it, try to keep him calm. And I had virtually zero exposure to anything like this. I was actually, you know, phobic of the doctors. I don't like hospitals. I vasovag. I start to pass out with lab draws. I don't like seeing blood outside the body. You know, all that stuff triggers me. And here I am in a situation where they're going to have to do emergent surgery on my son and I'm going to have to be at his bedside. So I had to get myself together. That's what I said when I mean I needed the download, the gift from divinity to be what my son needed me to be that calm. And what it was for me is after the doctor pulled me outside the room and the rooms have the glass doors and it's like a fish tank and I'm standing out there and my son, he can't see his eyes are swollen shut. So he was alone for the first time in like a day and a half. And I came back in after I got the news and I was literally standing there. Why God, why do, why would you do this? How could this happen to my innocent four-year-old boy? And do I even believe in a God that could allow this to happen? let alone administer as punishment or a soul contract or what, you know, boom, I'm just blowing up. And in that moment, I fell to my knees because my son struggled for a breath and it caught my attention. And I literally fell to my knees and I just knew right in that moment that I was given everything I needed to help him the most, which is just to be there and be present and not let him feel alone don't let anybody hold him down. Don't let anybody surprise him. Just be his guardian, his advocate, and be there 
And so that's what I did. I was able to go into the surgery room, get into his ear because he couldn't open his eyes. It's like an alien autopsy to a four-year-old, right? And so what I did is I just, I had read Shockey Gawain's book, Creative Visualization. I'd read Celestine Prophecy and Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I mean, that's like three books that I read that kind of gave me any kind of, and I had a spiritual upbringing. You know, I knew I was taken to Catholic church and I knew what I didn't want to worship, you know? So I was open to that, this sort of energy and divinity. I had had experiences with divinity throughout my life and I had a knowing about divinity and I just started to get in his ear and talk him down our ski slope where we had skied the last two years when he was two and three. And we floated the river on inner tubes in front of our house in Eastern Washington when he was two and three. So I just started slowly describing each of those events and how they were scary, but fun. And he needed to trust me then. And he needs to trust me now. And I just, you know, described every flicker of light off the water and off the snow and the feeling of the powder snow coming up under your chin and, you know, really took him there. And they were able to first put a pick line in his arm to his heart. And then in the next procedure, they were able to do a lumbar puncture without sedation. And they got three vials of spinal fluid and he didn't even bat an eye. He was into what I later found out was a theta brainwave mind out of body physiological state of receivership and nothing hurt. He had no pain. He had no physical experience to that at all. And so I immediately started researching that. And that's what led me down this rabbit hole. And I've learned, like I say, I've read a bunch of books about it afterwards. But during this, I was in bed with him in the hospital in one arm and my smartphone in the other. And I'm searching, you know, eye of the storm. We were like the eye of the storm. And it took me to Nassim Haramin. And, you know, it just kind of led me one thing to another. But later on, when I developed the nonprofit, after he got through all of the dozen different life, you know, threatening events, I read all of the books that I refer to because I wanted to give scientific language to miracles that we were experiencing because I couldn't ask the doctors and the anesthesiologists to give me some space to perform some woohoo miracle. I had to say, I'm creating a physiological state for my son of receivership for your treatment. And that worked. So I was able to do that over and over and over again until we developed the program that like our controlled breathing is what he used in his final big operation four years ago was a kidney transplant that he had without an epidural and out without any pain meds at all. And he was up out of bed the next day. He was released in nine days. He was eating because when you're on opiates, which is the law, you have to go from an epidural to an opiate to prove you can manage the pain. It, it stops you from eating, drinking, pooping, peeing. It dis, it disengages you from your consciousness, from your body so you just don't care. It doesn't kill pain. You just don't care, but it prevents you. It's like they said, your modalities got your son out of the hospital in nine days, but we have grown teenage young men that are stuck in the hospital for a month or two because they can't reduce the pain. They can't get up and walk. They can't eat and drink and do the things they need to check off the list. So it, like I said, when I, 
work with somebody from the Center for Healing Neurology, I don't need to know the diagnosis or the prognosis. I use the same core innate truths about our physiology and connecting to divinity to help every single person because we're all built the same. It's innate to all of us. And we can approach that divinity in everyday life when we're going to do an interview or meet somebody new. It doesn't have to be a time of crisis. And it's especially, especially powerful when we do practice it every day. And we, we, it's like neuroplasticity. The more we do it, like if you say a mantra, a 20 word mantra every day, pretty soon you just have to use the first word or just the first letter and it'll remind you of the whole mantra. Well, that's that neuroplasticity, that feeling of my body and I'm used to it. And then the more you do it, the less it takes to trigger that state of physiology, you get better and better and better at it in between. So that's really the key. Um, and, and the, 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 the universal truth that I was given and, and what I, what I try to give back. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so much, so much to say. The physiology of miracles, as you were speaking about McCoy and saying in that place, he felt no pain. A few thoughts came to mind. One of them was Jesus on the cross, you know, like they yeah. can, you can string me up, you can nail me to your cross. Like he was able to practice that a state of physiology or state, state, mental state, physiological state, divine state, to be, as Paul Selleck's guides say, in the upper room while yeah. we're having that, that human experience, like living yeah. in the, when you're in the upper room, Paul, Paul's guides say, which is another way of saying in that um, present moment awareness, mindful presence, you know, many, you know, divine channeling, theta brainwave, many things. There is no fear and there is no pain. There's no fear and there's no pain. And so can we live our life in the upper room? Uh, yeah. We can drop out. We can experience yeah. the pain. We can have roll around in the suffering for a while. Then we can yeah. come back into that upper room. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key, uh, which is your point is, is really, really important because so many people, when they've been stuck in the material world in fight or flight, and they start practicing, they want to go completely to spirit and just give up the body and, you know, material things don't matter. And, and all that's true. And you get to a state of energy, an energy being and connected, but we are still a body. We're still an instrument. We have a pineal gland for a reason, Mm. you know, um, an energetic body doesn't need a pineal gland to have a divine experience but a human body does. And like Joe Bolte-Taylor, Joe Bolte-Taylor in our interview, she talks about whole brain living where you incorporate everything. And she says, you know, at first we had a reptilian brain and we had a right brain of divinity, but we didn't have much left breath brain at all because it was just triggered to the fight or flight, like watch out for that saber-toothed tiger. And that's all it needed to do. But once we started eating protein, because we made tools and we started writing language and having words and hieroglyphs, that's all left brain phenomena and it grows. And then it diminished our connection to divinity. But the thing that grew last was the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, the decision, the free will, the personality, the decision-making. And when the left brain gets triggered into fight or flight into chronic stress, 
it draws all the attention of the thinking brain into trying to solve matter with matter in the now. Okay. But her definition of integration and evolution is when we join the two halves together, like complete whole brain living, you don't have to deny the flesh to be spiritual, right? Yeah. You don't have to, and, and, and one enhances the other, right? You can have euphoric moments in your body that are spiritual moments, right? And it's like, you know, the, I, I love the, the image of souls standing, waiting to come in, in line to come to earth. And the one in front is like all giddy and they're saying, well, what are you so excited about? And they say, well, I need, I get to go eat chocolate, you know, like your energy being can't taste chocolate, can't have sex, can't do all the things that bring enjoyment in a physical body. Right. So we're really here to incorporate, you know, it's like Wayne Dyer passed on what he said about, you know, we're not physical beings here to have a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings trying to have a human experience. Right. So we don't want to ignore one to be the other. Right. You don't want to just go into a cave and be a monk and and practice your practice or go into a room for an hour and meditate or all day. You have to integrate that into your daily life and not you have to. But the goal would be to and, and the next level of evolution for humans is to fully integrate all the parts of our brain and body and soul and be that light on the face of the earth constantly. Right, absolutely. And um, yeah, I don't know if I can talk about this on, on YouTube, but let me just say but that anything that we bump up against that might not be for our highest good, you know, in that state of mind, brain, wave coherence, or in that we can transmute it, you know. Absolutely. Like, yeah, people are so absolutely. worried about certain allopathic um, things that are being rolled out and, yeah, you can trans yeah. you can transmute it. Yeah, I mean, I just had this conversation. I had a three hour Zoom earlier today. All right, uh, with somebody, <laughs> that, uh, a friend, a beautiful friend, um, and it's like, you know, when you're in a state of divinity and receivership, your immune system is boosted. You're not in fight or flight. You're not having digestion problems. You're not having sleep problems you're in divinity, you're in a very high state of being. And if you look at, like, say you had a, a, a McDonald's hamburger, or you had the healthiest meal you could have. If you are in your state of divinity, and you have a high vibration, and you aren't afraid of that food, you can eat that food and get more nutrition out of it than somebody who's triggered and closed and in fear eating the most healthy meal on the planet. Exactly. You're going to get more out of it. And there's a, a really good example is my son McCoy, his immune system is suppressed because he received a kidney from his mom and the body, the immune system constantly tries to kick it out, but he's in such a coherent state. Like, some parents will tell their kids to name the kidney after the person who donated it, or it's like my mom's kidney. Well, no, it's not. It's not foreign. You know, the atoms in that are the same atoms that make you, and it's all energy that creates form. So let's just accept that as your own tissue. So you're not starting a fight within your being. And he requires very, very little immune suppressant. 
in order to get the numbers they need. So he maintains his kidney function, right? Uh. Well, if now he got COVID, he's vaccinated because they it's mandatory through the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we receive that vaccine in the same way. This is only going to do what's good and leave your body unharmed and just mm-hmm. pass through. We're wow. energetic beings and we can make that decision. So we received the two vaccines. He later got COVID. He spent the morning in the hospital because he had 102 fever and he's a, a, a high risk patient to them. And he just kicked its butt. I mean, it, his immune system just handled it. He had a fever that morning. It broke by the time we were in the emergency room. They checked all his labs. They did his blood work. They checked everything for viruses. And they said, there's nothing we can do for you. Your immune system is handling this beautifully. And they let us go home. Wow. Okay, this is an immune suppressed child. But again, if he's open and receptive and connected to divinity, his immune system is going to be way stronger than any other person who's living in fear and triggered. And it's naturally suppressed from the inside. Cause you know, it's like they say, if you, if you have a, if you have a cut on your hand, your immune system heals it automatically. We don't need anything outside of us to heal that wound. But if we're triggered into fight or flight, like the saber two tigers chasing us, all the energy, creative energy goes to surviving, not fixing that wound. So if we can be in a state of homeostasis of receivership, that wound's going to heal because we're in rest and digest and rebuild. Right. Right. So it's all relative to your state of receivership. It's all relative. There's nothing we can't do from that state of divinity. And, and in saying that, so you said that, okay, so McCoy is on immune suppressant drugs, which greatly reduce your immune function when you're on anyone that's had any transplant and um and your yeah your 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 lymph doesn't flow and people swell up and look like balloons like the immune suppressant drugs are pretty hideous but you're saying he's on a very 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 low dose yeah can and so can we when we take on another organ from another person or anything into the body really and the immune the immune function is saying this is not of my body attack it attack it you know so the immune system is attacking it because they see it as a foreign body and so yeah. that you're on immune suppressant drugs to stop the immune system from attacking the foreign object can the body completely and absolutely accept the other cells organ as a part of its own like without having like can he get off those immune suppressant drugs that that is actually an intention of ours and we try to be very careful about those words because it's one thing to have from from your from your physiology of divinity to have a clear intention but it's very important to remove the necessity to have an agenda for a human outcome because we often attach our left brain thinking to the need of an outcome instead of just being present in the event And the best way to have the best possible outcome is just to be present in every moment of the event. So we have an intention that there is, you know, you look at homeopathy where you have a little bit of a substance and it goes in a water and then that becomes printed. Well, we're water, you know, and that has water has memory. And as long as you're not closed off and body armored in fear, then your cells are constantly getting upgraded signals from divinity on how to be in your environment. 
the perfect match for your environment, divinity will give you what you need. But if you're struck in fear and you close off that portal to divinity, then you're stuck in fight or flight. And you know what you need and what you can do are completely different. So we hold space like they do. They, they actually call it, we give him a whiff of these medicines because it's like the lowest dose they've given anybody for the, what he's gone through. And it gives them the numbers they need for kidney function. So it's like, yeah, we're giving them just a little bit. And we would love to think that if, you know, the sky fell and we couldn't go to the hospital anymore, that we could sustain his wellness without those medicines. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think we can. Yes. 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 I have no doubt. Jeff. I mean, it's, it's yes. in my knowing. It's in I my think, knowing. I think we can all sustain our health without the need for any medicines. Blanket yep. statement. People yep. will say, no, oh, no, we need these. But blanket statement. But I, maybe right. I haven't. So Kristen's got a great, great question here. Darling, one, do you want to come on and ask? Do you want me to spotlight you? Or do you want to stay unspotlighted? Please come on. <laughs> I'm spotlighting you. I, I don't. I don't mind. <laughs> there she I'll be is. brave. This is Kristen. Hi, Kristen. <laughs> Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm a. Nice I'm a little you. intimidated by your big brain because you're super smart. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll squish down. No, you're you're wonderful, and oh. um, I just want to initially thank you for um, sharing again with all of us um, that compelling story of you coming to these realizations. That's from the heart I can tell. Um, so uh, you were bringing up things about the different sides of the brain that were uh, making me question things I've heard in some of my esoteric circles, if you will. Yeah. And that is, you know, cause what I'm getting from you is we are to be able to use both left and right brain at the same time mm -hmm. so that they're exercised to the same level so that we can create these um, more divine experiences so is there an actual divider between the two sides of the brain or are they just separate yeah no sides? that's a great great question Kristen. and it's you know the 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 reality of our anatomy is that they've always called it two hemispheres because they're connected in the middle by a bundle of neurons called the corpus callosum and they communicate between the right and left brains and it's described and it's actual. It's not just, you know, a, a theological metaphysical, you know, it's, it's an actual literal that the corpus callosum acts as a bridge to connect the two together, but it also acts as a veil. It's a divider between like, if you were, if you came into this world with no veil, you'd be clairvoyant. You'd have access to divinity all the time your soul journey would be known to you. There would be no mystery. There would be no human experience to be had by a spiritual being if there was no veil to our corpus callosum. So everything we do, and here's another important point, and this is another Joe Bolte-Taylor fact, that the majority of the nerve, the bundle that goes through the corpus callosum to the right and left brain, the majority of those connections are inhibitory, which means function of the left brain inhibits the function of the right brain. So we have an automatic connection to divinity, but our left brain inhibits that function. That's the veil. Okay. When we open up our left brain 
to divinity, it, it creates the bridge. There's a bigger bridge and the veil diminishes. It's like a tipping scale. The more you come on these shows and the more you read, the more you open up your living system to new information, you're increasing that bundle, that neural bundle in the corpus callosum to make a bigger bridge. You're creating bigger awareness about your divinity. And then the veil diminishes. So what's really important to understand is that we have, regardless of how we came into this world, you know, how much bridge, how much veil, how much connection to divinity, regardless of our social and environmental setting that we were born into, mm -hmm. regardless of the soul journey that we had contracted before we came or whatever's playing out ancestral, we have the ability to advance that learning, to advance that connection by raising our awareness and reducing that veil. And most of the body functions are inhibitory. I mean, our standing heart rate would be 150, 60 beats a minute because it's the pedal, the gas pedal down all the time. And any practice we have of the parasympathetic of relaxing is just the break, slowing that down to 70 or 80 beats a minute. And the reason it does that is because it's like a rubber band being pulled back. If you let go of the parasympathetic, it'll snap that sympathetic back up to 150 beats a minute to respond to crisis. So instead of it's like, oh, we have to activate the parasympathetic and build something there before it'll, you know, rev up the sympathetic response, the sympathetic is always on. So it's like our right brain is always on to divinity. But the, the veil is created by the windings of the left brain of, of two-dimensional, three-dimensional world fighting fire with your hands and, you know, dealing matter with matter. So being triggered into fight or flight or chronic stress puts you in left brain and blocks your veil. It blocks the bridge to your divinity. So it's inhibitory. It's yeah. an inhibitor. And it's actually way like in um, the study of consciousness by David Hawkins in Power Versus Force, he even says that plant medicine does not make you high. Plant medicine removes the inhibitory factors that are inhibiting you from having lucid experience 24 seven. Yes. Like, like yes. Joe Bolte Taylor's brain bleed inhibited the function of the left brain so the right brain flourished right. right yeah the inhibiting factors of her left brain were diminished so her right brain just took off so this isn't this isn't like i said like theology you know metaphoric right. theology this is literally the way we're built and how we function and we can then utilize that knowledge to access our divinity at all times so then as we evolve, or as we like the term you're using biohack this, are we going to get rid of the inhibitors is the corpus callosum? <laughs> I'm trying to learn the word is that going to Beautiful. get bigger, and there'll be less inhibitors? Will that yes. create more? I mean, I just think that we are as a human race evolving always and still and maybe we're on a faster track to yep. continue to open up the divine channels. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, right on. Yeah. You are 
Beautiful question. And yeah. you're exactly right on. Because are they just going to fuse or, you know what I'm saying? I'm, well, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. When you think of, when you, when you look at neuroplasticity, like when a baby sees the rattle, wants the rattle, but can't reach up and grab it because there's no synaptic connections between the part that drives the hand and the part that's connected to the desire in the eyes. But as soon as there's a synaptic connection, then that baby can grab the rattle. And like riding a bike, every time you do it, it, instead of a path, like I tell kids, when you do something for the first time, it's like walking through tall grass. You can turn around and kind of see where you went through. But if you go back and forth and back and forth, pretty soon there's a really clear path there. Well, that's what happens anytime you play the piano, then you make a synaptic connection and then your brain will actually work on it. Like this is another fact about our physiology is that if you go snow skiing for the first time, and then two weeks later, go again, you're going to be better at it two weeks later, because your brain, your autonomic consciousness said that was scary. We're going to need to survive this again. So it plays it out over and over and over again, subconsciously, and your body doesn't know the difference. The brain does not know the difference between a story and a real event. So when you dream something, that's why we can have, you know, all kinds of lucid dreams or, you know, whatever physical response from a dream is that your brain doesn't know the difference between a story and a real event. So when you, when you practice this biohacking, you're making neurological connections, in the, which is increasing the bridge. It's making a bigger bridge. So you have a greater connection. And anytime you grow the bridge, you reduce the veil. So then when you think about biohacking your way to divinity, you're halfway there already because you've got the neural connections and you're getting better at it just by um, your brain working on it in between. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the good and, questions. Yeah. And I love Diane's question too, because I want to hear the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Diane, do you want to you come on? Add you to the spotlight? Okay, sure. Oh, sorry. I think I accidentally muted you. (laughs) I think I accidentally muted you because there we go. Okay. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. This is fascinating. Thank Um, you. I was wondering, you know, the, um, the music tones that you can play in your two ears, you have one going in this ear, one going in this ear, they're supposed to sync them. Do those really work? Yeah, they really do. Um, binaural beats or I have, I use tuning forks. And I'll take a C in one hand and a D in another, and I'll strike them and put one on each ear. And the brain tries to harmonize just like when we echolocate, like Mm -hmm. hearing is one is a really, really fine tuned device for our survival. And we can hear a noise and really point at it like that. Right. So um, I'm sorry. What? I forgot where I was going. Excuse me. Yeah. Oh, just the two different tones, you yes. know, and that with the different beats. So, yes, That's thank awesome. you, thank you. So it tries to equalize. So mm-hmm. it's it's it naturally tries to harmonize the two sounds, and that's integrating the right and left brain together. Okay, so like um, the left brain, in another level of function, controls the right hand, and the right brain controls the left hand right? But if we intentionally practice things with our offhand, it'll develop neural connections that weren't there before. So we can use, you know, 
equalizing sounds or like snapping this finger and snapping this finger will bring you into a, a dual brain system where you're not dominated by one side. So those are all ways that you can trigger the homeostasis and balance between the left and right brain. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Sorry, I had a pause there, but I, that's I, okay. I, I do that all the time. I, yeah. um, I've got so many thoughts running through my head, so many questions. And then, and then as yeah. you're talking, you've kind of gone past my question and I'm like, okay, I'll have to skip that one. And then I'll forget where I am. Uh, well, well, there actually aren't too many other questions, but I just wanted to get back to what Kristen was saying about are we going to join those two hemispheres? Like I've heard that evolved races, ET races, do have uh, one hemisphere of the brain. There's no separate lobes like we have with the corpus callosum connecting. It's just one brain. Yeah, so their physiology has already evolved to because of their consciousness evolving. So as we evolve our consciousness, we're literally evolving our physiology. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I fully believe that. And yeah. even having the awareness that that can happen, mm -hmm. because the way that humans create is through imagination. Imagination right. is the beginning of creation. Right. So if we're opened up to new ideas and we focus on it as humanity, like when we are, you know, like necessity is the mother of invention, right? When we are in the moment of need, and we're stuck on a problem and we're heart, our heart is in it, every inventor, and I'm a patented inventor, every inventor will tell you, I don't know where that idea came from, you know, or how many songwriters said, I was sitting in the bar and I wrote out this multi-platinum album on a napkin because, and I don't know where it came from. I mean, genius always says it didn't come from this ego, you know, it came as a download. So when we're in that moment of need, and we like, it's, it's a simultaneous invention is so well documented over the history of man that the reason they have a patent and trademark office is because there's so many simultaneous inventions. It's like before humans could communicate across the oceans, there were farmers inventing the same equipment in different parts of the land that couldn't communicate because they were, humanity has a need, and you're in the moment and you receive the download. Well, when you make the connection, like um, David Hawking said, there isn't a 3D question that can be asked by a human where a quantum solution doesn't already exist. Like there is a quantum energetic solution for every physical problem we have in the world, but we just can't connect the two together. And the way that you connect two things together, if you think of a mediator, a really good mediator will come into a, a really uh, a tense situation where two different parties are stuck on a disagreement. Okay, what they do is they come in at Mushin, they have an intention but no agenda, they come in and they find commonality between the two. And they get the sides talking and they become the low pressure system that draws them together. It's like everything in the universe works off a differential of energy. Like if you have people, I say this, people think the wind blows. Well, it doesn't just blow. It's the low pressure system draws the air over from the high pressure system. So when you become that low pressure system, 
Wow. When you don't have human windings and you become Mushin, when you become Ho'oponopono, you open yourself up for those downloads. That's yeah. how we receive the information. So when we are open, we're going back to the single brain. Okay. I'm going to find my way back. Okay. When we can imagine something, we can evolve to that. We virtually create the physics and the physiology to achieve what we can imagine. And there's nothing that we can't do or change about us or our environment or, or anything, but we do it as a collective. We do it as a group. Cause like, we don't like Nassim Haramin says, we don't create the universe by ourselves. Otherwise we'd never meet each other. There's <laughs> creation requires me, you and divinity right. and it's an agreement. We're in a Newtonian world of quantum physics, right? Yeah. And at the at the molecular rate, we all agree to act Newtonian, yeah. but we're really quantum. We're right. quantum beings. And, and quantum biology, the whole study of it didn't even exist till just a few years ago. Yeah, no, scientists were talking about it 100 years ago. And what scratches my head, Jeff, is that how we're just 100 years later or maybe even more, we're just starting to integrate it into society because it has been out there and known, you know, like there were, there were scientists talking about quantum anyway so yeah. uh, it's been mostly ignored for the most part but what I wanted to get to was um, oh now so many thoughts now I have to a few things that you said you're talking about critical mass so yeah. um, you know the more people start to think the same thought then it becomes it reaches a certain critical mass and it becomes it becomes the belief in the collective and yeah. so th this is what we can all do as light workers we can think about what it is that we want to see in the world. And if more of us think about it, we don't even have to action it, you know, but the more of us think about this as a reality rather than a myth or a miracle, yeah. or, you know, a myth or a miracle, like it, this is reality. The more of us that think about it then becomes the standard mode of operandi. It becomes collective consciousness, you know? Yeah. The, yeah. But I wanted to go into your story because there was something that you said that was so poignant and I introduced you to Scarlett. Lewis and the two of you got on her podcast, right? Have you yeah. had any? Have you she done got any? On mine. I had her got, on mine. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And and she started her own podcast as well, right? Didn't she? Did she? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, she said great. she did. I don't know if she's still doing it, but anyway, because she's a busy gal. Uh, but there is a something in your story which was so poignant and similar to many people I've had on the show, and it was in that place of pure distress. And you didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, you knew exactly what to do. Yeah. And um, so it was rather than sitting and breathing and meditating in order to access divinity, you're actually in a crisis. Like in that crisis, access divinity happened, which seems sort of counter to what we're talking about, right? But yeah. <laughs> Kristen's nodding ahead. But there was something that Scarlett said about her story when um, you know her son was shot and she had reached her biggest fear when she realized she had experienced her biggest fear there was nothing else to fear and she sort of right. dropped into this place of like I give up I surrender I don't know it was a place of I can't figure this out right. and then she experienced that same she called it grace that same drop or into the upper room or drop into divinity where she accessed 
this higher consciousness and she knew exactly what to do. And they were your words too. And then I knew exactly what to do. I didn't know what to do. And then I did. Same, I had Ian, Dr. Ian, can't remember his last name, escapes me years ago on the show, whose wife was murdered. And uh, when the body was taken away, he dropped to his knees over the bloodstained carpet where she was murdered in his house. And he said, I don't know what to do. And then in that moment, <laughs> in that moment, he had that, again, that download where he just went, oh, I know exactly what to do. And similar. So. Yeah, I, I believe it's a divine moment. I mean, mm. we, we are open to divinity when we're in crisis and there's, holy smokes, there's all kinds of um, science that like Joe Dispenza, he does coherence work with heart math equipment where he reads heart rate variability that tells you when you're in homeostasis, you're swinging in the autonomic swing between sympathetic and parasympathetic and you, re you achieve homeostasis. Well, when you, you're in high coherence, you go, from, um, you go from theta into gamma, and he has what they call gamma-gasms. They read them with the EEG that they're just all over the place. You're having this, this experience, out-of-body experience being registered in your brain waves and in your heart coherence. Okay, yeah, gamma-gasms. I love and it. So you have two branches. If you look at the parasympathetic, and the sympathetic branch, okay, you can reach gamma out of fear in a near-death experience. And what it is, is like when you're in a situation where you need to survive it, like your autonomic consciousness's job is to keep you safe, keep you alive and thrive so you can procreate and pass on your DNA. So it's constantly watching out in your external environment and it creates an internal environment to respond to the perception of your external stimuli, right? So you're, you're constantly creating the state of physiology to respond to your environment, okay? So when we, when we realize that, when we can biohack our way into a neutral state, then we can shut down that chatter that pulls us away from that divinity and open ourselves up to receive that download in the moment. And that's, like I say, it's, um, it, it, and the word surrender, I think fits better than giving up because here we go on language, right? It's like, I can't process with my left brain any way out of this. It's not something I've experienced. I can't think my way out of it. And you just kind of surrender. And in the love of the moment, you're just at zero, like immediately and boom, the answer comes in. And I think that's how, um, you know, we're talking about tachopsychia. When, when you're in that near-death experience and the, the autonomic consciousness says, I'm going to need to survive this again. So it records more information per second than normal. And when you have like a near-death experience, it might take two seconds, but in memory, it's like 20 minutes long of I twisted and I fell and I landed on my back and I rolled over and I saw this cloud and I, you know, you're describing all these details and it's literally called tachopsychia because it changes the way we record time in our brain. So that's a form of gamma. That's where you um, are triggered in fight or flight. 
you see a near-death experience and you become so coherent in the moment that you can respond in a superhuman way. Okay, well, that was reaching gamma through the sympathetic side, the triggered side. But you can also reach gamma through the parasympathetic by being calm and collective. Then theta is the gateway to gamma, not through beta. High, high beta is an agitated state of fear. And you can go to gamma from that in a near-death experience. Like if you're so scared, you bounce out of high beta and into gamma, you're going to have tachopsychia where everything slows down and you're like the eye of the storm and everything's kind of in slow motion where like Michael Jordan or any good sports guy gets in the zone where everybody's in slow motion and they're passing between the legs. That's tachopsychia. Okay. So on the other side of that, when we're using our our breath to biohack into, into our physiology, into divinity, we get into a drop from beta awake into theta, where you're more internal than external. And then you go from alpha down to theta and theta then brings you to gamma. So you meditate or breathe your way coherence, your way down in the parasympathetic and reach gamma from that. So that's an intentional path to gamma versus the, the uh, reacting to a life event, like a near death experience. So anyway, that's kind of long winded, but that's. No, that's but this okay. is, this is what the rishis and the gurus have been teaching for thousands of years. In fact, yes. you know, with their breath and meditation practice. So there haven't been too many questions. Uh, there's been a lot of comments on YouTube. Uh, uh, hi to all the people watching live on YouTube. We've got Lizette, Misty, uh, quite a few people, Imba, uh, Michelle, quite a few people. But um, maybe we want to do it, as Eris asked at the beginning of this, um, do some practical stuff, get into the practice of this. So we were talking about physical pain with Eris, um, experiencing a lot of physical pain after having multiple spine surgeries so we can use it for physical pain but what you're saying is like what becomes a practice for maybe physical pain just becomes a lifestyle a practice yeah Yeah. practice so do you want to lead us through something yeah yeah um i have um four main breathing exercises and they go linearly um when we're triggered When we're in fight or flight, I have a breathing exercise called the reset breathing. And what we do is we take in as much air through the nose and a nasal inhale as possible for four seconds. Now you're going to max out at three, but that's the point. If you're stuck in fight or flight, like you're at warp seven and you're stuck, your autonomic nervous system is not swinging between like when we breathe in we trigger the sympathetic nervous system and our heartbeat speeds up. And when we exhale, it triggers our parasympathetic nervous system and our heartbeat slows down. When heart math measures your heart rate variance, it's measuring that like a sine wave over time. You breathe in, your heartbeat goes up, you breathe out, your heart rate goes down. That's what homeostasis is. And that's when you're coherent, the term coherent, your heart and mind are together and you're in balance and homeostasis. And they say it's like a tennis player waiting for a serve. You don't know which side that serve is going to go to. So you rock back and forth so you can respond. 
Well, that's what the autonomic nervous system does in homeostasis. So when we're stuck, it's not swinging. It's not going down into parasympathetic. It's just stuck and our heart rate's fast and our breathing is shallow so we can respond and fight and run. Okay. So when we're triggered like that, we want to do a reset breathing where we breathe in sharp for four seconds and it triggers the sympathetic nervous system at a higher rate than it was stuck at. Like if you're stuck at warp seven, it'll trigger you to like warp eight or nine. And then we do an oral exhale for eight seconds, making an O sound. And that triggers the parasympathetic and starts the heart rate going down. And then we go to our controlled breathing right after that. And then it keeps that swing going and creates homeostasis in our body. So that's, that's, that's a lot of explanation, but the, the, the first one is the reset. The second one is the controlled breathing. And it is simply gently breathing in your nose for five seconds. And then gently exhaling out of the mouth for six seconds, because it's important to have a longer exhale. And we make the ah sound with our vocal cords, because when we make the ah sound, the vocal cords vibrate the vagal nerves and release serotonin into the bloodstream, spray it onto the heart to calm the heart rate and blood pressure. And it can even release serotonin into the spinal fluid to block pain signals to the brain. This is the breathing exercise my son used through his surgeries to have no pain meds and no epidural. So that's a very important one. But then we move to what I call coherence breathing. And without the heart math to verify the swing of homeostasis, and I would like everybody, if they could, just find your pulse on your wrist or in your neck or your femoral artery, but your wrist, if you can. And first of all, is there anybody who cannot and has not been able to lately find their pulse on their body? Everybody can, or you, Michelle? Yeah. Okay, if you're having trouble finding your pulse, then what I want you to do is just know where to go right inside that bone of your wrist. And imagine if you could, this is actually a very important point because many people I work with with autoimmune diseases can't find their heartbeat. No doctor or nurse can find a heartbeat on their body without a stethoscope. That's because they're so triggered, their muscles and their veins shut down, and you cannot find a pulse. There's so much autonomic tension, which causes disease. So if you can find your pulse, that's great. Remember where it's at. If you can't, just go to that spot. And remember, imagine if you could, and maybe you will be able to after the first two breathings. But if we want to go through those, what I'll do is I'll do the counting. And we're going to do the reset breathing first. Four seconds in the nose as much as possible. Eight second eight, exhale with an O, puckered lips. One cycle of that. And then we're going to do five cycles of the controlled breathing, gentle in the nose and gentle out the mouth for six. And then we're going to reach for our pulse and see if we can find it. And then we're going to switch. We were counting seconds of breathing. Now we're going to count heartbeats. You're going to count five heartbeats in your nose. 
and six heartbeats out your mouth. And what you'll notice as you do that is that when you breathe in, you can feel your heartbeat speed up. And when you breathe out, you can feel your heartbeat slow down, especially like on four, five, and six. And what you're doing is you're making biophysical communication between your hand, your brain, and your heart. And that creates neuroplasticity. And I actually use this with heart transplant patients, kids and adults that have had their vagal nerve severed for the heart transplant and they can't hook it back on. So they lose the hardwiring of how they feel. And this biophysical is a workaround so they can feel and create homeostasis in their body, even without their vagal nerves connected. It's called re-innervation. And we're actually growing vagal nerves back onto the heart. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. So I know that's a lot of description, but I'll talk you through it. So don't think you have to memorize it. And I do have these on slides. If anybody wants them, I can forward these to you with the scientific backing if you want it. But if you just kind of get comfortable, get your feet down, wiggle your butt into your chair and find your space, wiggle your spine in space and get comfortable. You can do this sitting up, laying down, doesn't matter. Okay, so we're going to all together, we're going to take a sharp nasal inhale for four seconds, and then an eight second oral exhale. Okay, ready? Go. Two, three, four, oral exhale. Oh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, gentle in the nose. Two, three, four, five, oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. Gentle in the nose. Three, four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. Gentle in the nose. Three, four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. Gentle in the nose. Four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. One more. Gentle in. Three, four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. Now keep breathing, but find your pulse. And we're all going to have a different heartbeat. So you have to count on your own, but just keep your breathing going in and out as you find your pulse. And then when you find it, breathe in your nose for five heartbeats and exhale out of your mouth silently for six heartbeats. And just notice that swing. And as you breathe in, notice it speeding up. And as you oral exhale, notice, especially on four, five, and six, it'll start to slow down, like stair-step it down with your conscious intent and breathe in. Five heartbeats in and six heartbeats out. Just find your rhythm. Okay, everybody do one more cycle, five heartbeats in and out at your pace. 
Okay, and everybody kind of shake yourself back into space here. Find your spot. Okay, was was everybody, anybody able to feel their heartbeat? Did anybody notice it speeding up and slowing down? Yes, good. Okay, that is biophysical feedback. Without the HeartMath $400 equipment, you just connected to biophysical feedback of creating homeostasis in your body with your conscious intent and breathing. So everybody that I work with, I'll put them on the heart math machine. I'll just do a standing conversation and show them where they're triggered. And in one try, they can become homeostasis just through this breathing. And then the more you do it, like I tell people, if you're willing to invest a half hour a day into your wellness, because most people spend their entire life managing their illnesses. So if you can peel consciousness away from your illness and put it 30 minutes a day towards your wellness, spend three minutes a day doing those exercises, three minutes a time, 10 times a day. Because if you can create sanctuary space in the morning and then throughout the day, little times, pretty soon that sanctuary space will grow longer and the gaps of stress in between will narrow. And it's called flipping the ratio of awareness. So instead of being triggered all day with moments of clarity, you'll have clarity all day with maybe only moments of triggering. You're switching that ratio of awareness. So that is three exercises out of the four that get you into verifiable biofeedback of homeostasis and sanctuary space. Say that again. Instead of having, say that again, uh, stress all day with moments of awareness. Say that again. You're going yeah, to have. It's the ratio of awareness. When we're triggered, we will be in anxiety all day anxiety. with maybe little moments of clarity. Mm -hmm. But the ratio of awareness, when you practice this a little bit at a time, your sanctuary space will grow in number and in time, which reduces the anxiety in between. So it at one point, you'll notice the flip where, hey, I've been relaxed all day with only moments of stress. And once you create that sanctuary space, that mushin, that ho'oponopono zero point, you recognize anything that's not. I, I think that's one of the things I love about the ho'oponopono practice is because they teach in their culture that the essence of everybody's soul is peace, joy, and love. And their natural states of being without human opposites, like human love has an opposite. It's hate, it's jealousy, whatever. Okay. And it's temporary, which is an important point. Because if you can get to zero through breath work or practice of whatever belief you get to zero, and you realize that everybody's essence is peace, joy, and love with God's fingerprint of who you are individually then you'll recognize when something's not peace, joy, and love. So when you create that space of, of sanctuary space, of homeostasis, of essence of your soul is who you're being, who you are, your peace, joy, and love, you'll notice really quick when something's not peace, joy, and love. And the important part about that is you can look, face that emotion, that trigger, Breathe in one time and exhale it and just feel it for what it is. And it won't linger. It won't build. 
Joe Bolte-Taylor proves that the lifespan of any emotion is only 90 seconds. But if you focus your mind on it and engage your heart, you can be in that negative emotion all day long. Yeah. So anytime you feel something in your environment that's not peace, joy, or love, you know that if just by facing it and breathing it, it'll be completely out of your system in 90 seconds. Right. That's true with everybody. We all have that capability. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would say that it's not the environment that's not peace, joy, and love. It's how you're perceiving the environment. It's your perception. So it's your belief. So, right, what you said about the more you do this, the more conscious you are of when you're not feeling okay. Yeah, like the more you do this, the more empathic you become, the more sensitive you become. So you're sensitive to the vibration of the think, the thoughts or the the belief that you have, which is meeting life and saying, this is not okay. Or, you know, you're meeting life with your perceptual experience, which is based in belief. So what people do when they start to they have a spiritual awakening and start to meditate is they do expand their sensitivity and then they suffer over their sensitivity because now they're feeling everything whereas before they were kind of numb they're in this place of flight fight fright you know autonomic immune uh, nervous system all the time but feeling like that was the default setting and not feeling it like not even noticing that they're stressed you say you're stressed it's like no i'm not and then they're screaming at everybody it's like you're stressed no i'm not (laughs) it's their new normal yeah yeah threshold of normality perceived normality yeah where they might not go up much higher than that and they're just there all the time but you're exactly right you're exactly right so we become more sensitive to how we feel and now we have to uh moderate you know manage our moods i suppose like now we have to learn to moderate our frequency so this breathing so when we hit a negative belief or thought or a stress or anxiety then you've got this tool that you're teaching us, this tool, this to to meet our to meet our beliefs, and yeah, and then we and then we start to be able to meet any part of life with love and understanding instead of right. freaking out. Yeah, you know? yeah, receiving it all as um, right. divinity because um, you know it's not that we want to create a state of numbness where we don't feel anything. We want to feel everything for what it truly is but only that like if a little trigger happens and we have all this somatic trauma built up inside of us, then every little trigger is going to awaken every trigger of all our somatic trauma. And that's why like the fourth breathing exercise is called the stir breathing. And every time we have a trauma, we have a a somatic trauma imprint in our myofascia body. And our energy body tangles with our physical body and holds trauma. It's called an event-specific biological marker. So we get a biological marker from a specific event, and it stays in our body. And I came up with the practice of STIR, somatic trauma imprint release, for my son's surgical sites. Because, you know, they guard them. You know, you don't want somebody pulling your tubes out or messing with your stitches or you got a tube hanging out of your, you know, with a vacuum or suction ball on it. And it's just very triggering. And we'd have to change dressings over his tubes for his catheters and things like that. So he would guard that. But I was shown away another download of how to approach something and back off. And you approach it and back off. 
the autonomic consciousness gets triggered, but there's no bad result. So over time, it diffuses the emotional response from that somatic trauma imprint. And we can use the breathing, the coherence breathing that I showed you by finding your pulse, because when we breathe out, we're triggering the parasympathetic. So when I do body work on people and I fi find uh, myofascial knots where people are holding somatic trauma and it's being body armored from new consciousness, like it's an emotional snapshot. If you were traumatized when you were seven, then you have an emotional Polaroid from the consciousness that took the picture pinned in your body somewhere. Okay. And so when we find those spots and we're exhaling, we touch them gently and it creates a sympathetic trigger and fight or flight because you're touching that wound, right? It's an emotional trauma in your body, but you're exhaling a parasympathetic response overlaid over the top. So what I found is that when I'm working on the surgical spots of my son and now other people that I can trigger the sympathetic body response, but it's got a parasympathetic exhale overlaying a sympathetic pattern over the top that that stored trauma is immediately released. And it can even be hallucinated as a lucid dream and be out of the person forever. Mm. It's just like Chinese acupuncture where they burn the bamboo mm -hmm. and the people will hallucinate the, the trauma. They didn't even remember it, but it's in there. It's that Bye. emotional snapshot. And, you know, I went way down that rabbit hole with one of my guests, Thomas Verney, who wrote the book, The Embodied Mind. And he's the world leader on cellular memory and trauma and how, how cells remember trauma and store trauma. And they actually talk about how a group of cells in the body, the cell membrane vibrates so fast that it can't receive new signals of how to act. So it stays stuck in that agitated state and holding the trauma. Well, when we do tapping or havening or my stir or any other, you know, method that gets you to that point, what it's doing, this is now scientifically proving, proven, it creates a delta brainwave state in your wakened brain, which is the sleeping state of rest and digest and heal. As REM, as in REM, we're dreaming, we're burning more calories in REM than when we're awake, right? So when you're in Delta, that's when kids grow, that's when we heal, that's when we get our downloads is in Delta. So by doing the stir work during a somatic trigger, we're putting a parasympathetic overlay and we're calming the cell membrane so that it can release that trauma and get new marching orders from consciousness. It's yeah, that's the that's the belief of what's happening. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because we're just we're bringing into the, the the secular mind, you know, the Western scientific mind. You know, as I said before, what the Rishis have been talking about for thousands of years. But we're making it science. We're making it real. We're making it exercises. There's a couple of questions, a couple of comments here. Wendy says, "Good to remember that 90 seconds." I wonder if that process works for addictions and us auto fear addictions or habits as well. Sorry if that's, do you want to come on and ask, where are you, Wendy? Do you want to come on and ask that question? Yeah, it seems like an important question, Wendy. She's got her um, camera off. You want to I come on? I have my camera off, but I'll be happy to talk. 
Okay. Um, okay, we're listening. You were, you were talking about that when you were saying hold trauma. And I was just listening to a few people last week who have all, always bring up these past traumas. And so they, they never really exorcise them from their bodies. And I wondered, are these types of addictions that people need to feel, they need to hold on to these traumas? And, and is there, is the breathing, if you, is the breathing pattern stronger than holding that trauma? I mean, if you need to hold on to that trauma for some kind of, because maybe that's a comfort zone for you. It's, you're, you're so used to being in trauma or, or chaos that you don't feel comfortable unless you're in it. How, so there's two questions, I think. Is it like an addiction? And the other is, how do you um, know that, that you're that person who's constantly in trauma and how do you start to let that go? Well, that's a really, really, really good point, Wendy. And it's important because <clears throat> we get, <clears throat> excuse me, our autonomic consciousness uses the left brain triggers to warn us. Like last time we saw that person, they hurt us. So we got to be ready. Okay. That's your mode of survival. And when we have an emotional snapshot, like a somatic trauma imprint, <clears throat> when something in our environment triggers that, it creates a blood chemistry to respond to that emotional trigger of in your social environmental uh, surroundings. <clears throat> and that is like an addiction because our ego wants to say, see, I told you so, we needed that response. That's how people put up walls from young damage, like, you know, marijuana is not the gateway drug, childhood trauma is, right? Childhood trauma leads to addictive behavior, to repeat patterns. So the ego can say, I told you so, see, we got hurt again. You're creating that same pattern over and over and over again. So not only do you get addicted to the blood chemistry that it creates by staying triggered and fight or flight, you also get addicted to the outcomes that happen in your life. Like, see, I told you so, they are a bad person. They did lie to me. They did hurt me. We create that to reassure our ego and even to a fault, but it's doing it for survival. There's a survival mechanism that's good, but if it's overactivated, then it becomes harmful and addictive. So I believe, and what I've seen is that nobody is, an innate, is innately addicted to being triggered. Our body, our consciousness, our higher self, our divinity, our body wants to be in homeostasis. It wants to be balanced, but we're just not used to it. We are so used to, like when I work with people and I have them start slowing down their breathing and they've been triggered so long, the autonomic consciousness does not want to let go of the reins. Because it says, why should I trust you now? I've been breathing for you to get you through life all the way up till now. And all of a sudden you want to slow down. Well, they have difficulty, but it's normal that when your conscious mind tries to take over an innate function, that your autonomic consciousness doesn't want to give up that job. So you'll fight it a little bit. So that's where when you achieve homeostasis and the sanctuary space, and it feels foreign. It's not the blood chemistry and the response you're addicted to. 
it feels foreign. So it takes a little while to make a new normal. To, and the important part is to know that's going to happen, to know that we do get addicted to our blood chemistries. We do get addicted to our habits. We get addicted to getting the response that we didn't want to have, but we just knew would happen. We get addicted to those outcomes to reinforce the ego. And it, it even goes way deeper than that physiologically, but that's the surface of what happens. So when we create that homeostasis, that sanctuary space, it's going to feel foreign and it's going to go against that addiction. But I believe everybody is capable of achieving homeostasis in that sanctuary space and breaking that addiction. And it even works with literal drug addiction because you're, you're bringing in a foreign substance to create a physiology that you get addicted to because you're hiding from trauma. You're not being open to your trauma. You're, um, and, and you relive it. It's something else you mentioned too, is that like in a lot of therapies, like Freudian therapies, they go back and excavate the past and talk about your mom and talk about this and whatever, and you're reliving it. Remember, the brain doesn't know the difference between a story and a real event. So every time you have a child relive trauma, their body's reliving it like it's actually happening. Okay. It's so that chemistry. Yes, it's yes. And so what I always say is we don't need to excavate the past to clear your future. Because if we just create homeostasis now, it'll all get released. The autonomic consciousness wants to let go. Like if you have bandwidth, your autonomic consciousness has this much bandwidth. And every time you have a wound, a fear, everything, that bandwidth gets diminished. And a lot of your consciousness is to maintaining your armor and maintaining your guard on society. So you won't be affected by other people. Well, every time you do that, you're giving up away, you're giving away your creative ability so each time we can have a somatic trauma imprint release, anytime we can release that trauma, it liberates the energy that was holding it stuck. And that's creative energy we can use in our life to create the life we want. Yeah. That's so absolutely fascinating. And I'm just thinking of people who constantly repeat uh, personal relationship patterns because they know what to expect and they know that it's going to turn a certain way. And they're actually comfortable with the negative input and the negative feelings, even though they're striving so hard to find a type of ascension and a type of release to heal and get rid of the healing. And it's and they think that if they just keep repeating it, it will somehow stop somewhere. But I, I think that what you're talking about is maybe not taking, maybe taking stock of the past and knowing this is what you've done but trying to just let go of those thoughts and move yourself into a more positive framework in the future and your past will, because you can't heal yourself before you go on. You have to heal along the way. And, but in the, if, you, if you move into breathing properly and releasing all this negative energy in general, your, your trauma may actually, this is what I'm repeating what you said, heal itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a release. I, I believe it. it. It's, Yannette, it's really true. I just want to ask, Yannette has a question here. How long do you recommend? Honey, what do you mean by that? I, I think that that question was addressing something we talked about ages ago. Um, about the breathing? How about many the breathing. Or... 
Yeah, I just wanted to know how long you recommend doing it for. I think the I missed breathing, the breathing yes. exercises. Yeah, it, if you go through like the reset breathing, they're, they're lineal. Like you do the reset breathing, it leads you to the uh, controlled breathing, which leads you to the coherence breathing. Okay. But once you've done it, like chanting a mantra over and over, you don't have to start at the beginning. You can just go right to the controlled breathing or the coherence breathing. So when we progress, when we practice and it becomes part of us, you know, that neuroplasticity takes place and we're able to take a breath and slow ourselves down. And if we can find our pulse and feel it speed up and slow down with our breath, inhale and exhale, then we can omit the first two breathing exercises. So you might spend five minutes at a time running through one set of reset, five cycles of controlled and five cycles of coherence breathing would be like five minutes. But as you do it more and more, it'll, it'll take less time to go through it and you can shed the reset. You can even go straight to the coherence breathing, do the controlled and then the coherence, and it'll take less time, but you'll create a sanctuary space of blood chemistry and physiological state that'll last longer. That bubble will extend longer. So I always say, if you can do it, if you can do it for three minutes, 10 times a day, and then maybe grow on that sanctuary space, like be aware that you're creating sanctuary space in three minutes and you get up and you're going to do another one an hour later. Say you're going to do one every hour while you're awake. You try to carry that sanctuary space as long during that hour as you can till you do the next one. So it really only takes about three minutes at a time. And I have Lots of people I work with that can't do it 10 times. They can't breathe in for five seconds. They need to plug one nostril and breathe in for two seconds and then exhale for three. It's like wherever you need to start, you know, if you're really, really um, autonomically tight, you have a lot of autonomic tension, you might have to go through all of them multiple times for a week or more. But I've literally had people like this one young lady who has never felt her heartbeat. Only doctors and nurses with a stethoscope has ever felt her heartbeat. She's tiny and she's really wound tight. And she has a lot of autonomic tension from medical things that happened in her life. And I told her about the reset, the controlled and the coherence breathing. And that's when she told me, I've never been able to feel it. And I said, just imagine if you can, just imagine if you could, what would it feel like? And when she did the reset breathing and then the controlled breathing for five cycles, she reached up and immediately found her pulse in the very first try. And they'd never done it her whole life. They were in tears. Her mom and I were in tears that in one session, like 15 minutes of a session, she was able to find her own pulse and then monitored that it was speeding up and slowing down. So she had the immediate buy-in that she was creating homeostasis in her body with her intention. So she was relaxing her, her muscles enough, the surface yep. muscles, for her to be able to penetrate that hard wall of muscle to feel the blood pulse. Yep. Okay, there's a couple of questions here. Diane says, how do we find those spots in our body that are holding trauma if we don't remember them? And Paul's got a question on YouTube. Hey, Jeff and Karen, 
have you noticed any difference in your work, Jeff, between left-handed people and right-handed people? Two great questions, a few more mm. questions to go. Which one do you want to go first? Well, the left-hand, right-hand is real interesting. Um, I have not noticed any distinct correlation between right-handed um, I think people that are right-handed can sometimes be more left brain dominant and people that are left-handed can be more creative. There's correlation there. Um, but I think everybody um, has the ability to suffer. Yes. And we have the yeah. ability to, to, to ease that suffering ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the other question? Diane says, how do we find those spots in our body that are holding oh, trauma right. if we don't remember the trauma? Right. Well, there's there's um, two triangles. You have myofascia spots. Like if you find your collarbone and go out to your shoulder, there'll be a little dip in there. And if you raise your arm up and kind of run your fingers down along your collarbone and in this, it's in your upper, upper pec muscle, not down in the breast, but in the upper pec, there'll be a sensitive spot. There'll be a spot that's like a knot. And you won't notice it until you push on it. And then you'll be, wow, that's kind of charged. Okay, I can find one right here on me. Okay, so what you can do is you can just find it and lightly touch it. And when you breathe in, I have people imagine themselves in an image with their perfect health, where they're riding a horse or they're running to give me a hug or they're, you know, visualize something that represents your future self free of these triggers and free of the trauma. And then when you exhale, you exhale anything that's not it. So I have people breathe in. And once they establish that coherent breathing, where they're breathing in for five heartbeats and breathing out for six, and they can really feel it slowing down, I'll find that spot. And you can do it on yourself and start pressing on it gently. Just say hello. Just don't like, it's not a massage. It's not, it's like a pressure point. And you just find it and you slowly put pressure on it on four, five, and six. And that creates a sympathetic trigger, but you're breathing a parasympathetic overlay over the top. So you're changing the emotional charge and it can immediately release the trauma. But it might take a few sessions and it's something that I'm starting to teach and certify. It's a brand new practice that's being endorsed by Bruce Lipton and Thomas Verney and Bruce Cryer and, you know, all these international um, hotshots right now, um, because it is something that happens innately and we can remove it from ourselves. So when we feel shame, guilt, angst, embarrassment, we literally change our posture. It's like the opposite of power posing. You know, all through nature, people power pose and it sends endorphins and adrenaline, ah, you know, but when we feel shame and angst, we go like this. And then these muscles get tight. And then these muscles try to overcorrect and we get knots in our neck and headaches. And we go to a massage therapist and pay 150 bucks an hour to massage all this, but it just comes right back because this is pulling it down. So what we do is we practice releasing that posture, taking a stance in a safe place. You're, you know, it's very vulnerable to feel that. So these are the spots that get loaded up when your heart has angst. So now there's a triangle from these two spots down to your heart chakra. 
and then from your heart chakra down to inside your hip bone. So just about a third of the way between your hip bone and your pubic bone, your root chakra, there will be an intersection. Just like here, think about every vein and artery and muscle attachment, tendon, everything that happens from here to your shoulder and from your shoulder down, this is an epicenter. This is a super highway of everything going through, okay? We have the same thing down in our hips between our hip bone and our root chakra. There's an intersection of the veins, the arteries, the tendons, muscles go through there. It's a super highway and that can get so tight. So this is like 90% of the people I work with are women and children. And when we've been violated, when we've had unwanted sex, when we've had trauma to the sacral area, we hold tension there just like we do here from heart angst. And hear this, when we've been hurt in the sacral area, it also hurts our heart. And we're very rarely able to speak our truth about what happened. So that, that so blocks true. your throat chakra. That is okay? so true. Yeah. That's so, something I learned. That's something I learned giving birth. Like when we open those base chakras, we actually they're connected, like that sacral chakra, throat chakra connection, heart chakra, base chakra connection. Yeah. So when we're closed off or in fear, we're closed off here too. Yeah, that's that's yeah. so yeah. true. Yeah. And when we're, you know, when we're hurt in the heart, the heart chakra goes all the way through the crown. It connects to divinity. We open our heart to divinity and then we can open it to the world, right? Okay, so if your heart chakra is blocked and your throat chakra is blocked, you're never going to reach your potential, right? You're never going to And because the heart's connected to the root chakra, you also feel not embodied you're also yes. not you're not here like people say right. I've, i'm beside myself you know right. like you're literally outside your body and that's when you don't have that sensitivity to what's going on in your body getting back to diane's question you know how do we know if we've got stored trauma in the body if we don't remember the trauma yep. just have it's, a massage you'll find that like it's, <laughs> it's subconscious it's under your consciousness it yeah. is held somatically it's, it's cellular memory, not, it doesn't have to be. Now, some people remember their trauma, but like the first person I worked on this with, she had stored a trauma from when she was a child, she was gang raped. And because of the social situation, she didn't want to name names and she carried it for 40 years. And she was a shut in. She had no ability to leave the house, see the light of day, cook meals. Mm -hmm. um, she couldn't drive. And I did three sessions at her house and the fourth session, she drove to clinic. And the fifth session, we did a joint session with Bonnie and I, my partner, and she had a lucid, vivid memory release from that gang rape. And she just said it without emotion. She just said it articulately. It was like the most articulate sentences, paragraphs she'd ever formed since I met her because she's just barely can function. She was able to release all that and it was gone. Mm. I mean, she literally hadn't had sex in 15 years with her husband. Mm. Wow. Till that night. Yeah, I, I know. Healing is available and never more available on planet Earth than it is right now. Right but Kristen now. had Kristen had a great comment too about how she's just loving this and she so wants to um, 
I can't find your comment now, Kristen, but you said you so want to study this further. Uh, are you, uh, you're offering courses now? So you've got your podcast, you've got Mindful Presence. And I just want to remind people that are watching um, both on YouTube, not so many left on YouTube now, uh, or are watching the replay, if you're loving this, because Jeff um, and I do a lot of, you know, put a lot of information for free, you can make a donation to the work at mindfulpresence.org. I've popped the um, link in the chat there. And uh, if you're loving the shows that I put out, you can also make a donation to, you know, the Inner Sanctum and accentuate the positive, the PayPal links in every description. But, yeah, so let's talk about your courses. You're, you're teaching this stuff now? Yeah, I'm just actually starting with a PhD who's going to set up the protocol and the research to um, have a training program so we can certify other people. I've got a group of people in the Seattle area that have been exposed to this and want to be practitioners because nobody else in the world is doing it. And it's something that, you know, I work with people that have so, so much trauma that they can't be on a screen. They can only be the phone away from their head and talk audio. And I'm able to talk them through it. But of course, it's much easier to be able to look face to face. And then it's even, you know, exponentially better to be in person, because it's something that I kind of have a knack for finding the spot and doing the breathing, being in a coherent space and releasing. So I do work with people in person. Um, I never charge for people in crisis. I always do it at no charge through my nonprofit. And then, of course, people can make donations. But um, I was given these gifts for free during my crisis. So I am going to spend the rest of my life doing it at no charge. And I'm hopefully relying on private and corporate sponsorship to keep me going and build what we want to build. Yeah, beautiful. And Sally says here that uh, she's been really sorry. I've just lost your message here. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Uh, Sally Louise, thank you for this. I have to go. Um, but she's really enjoyed it. And Kristen, I look forward to learning this process to help those in the in my community. I will mm. travel to Seattle to take the course. Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I've, I've already hosted a couple people that flew into Seattle for body work and I do like a little retreat and I spend, it's, it's paradigm shifting. You come in on a one day and you're, it's a, it's a paradigm shift in a day. Yeah. Wendy says she wants to learn as well. Beautiful. Yes. Lots of trauma in this world, lots of opportunity to, um, to, to look at the trauma, to face the trauma and, uh, and transmute it. And as we do it for ourselves, we can do it for others, right? Like when we learn, especially, you know, uh, the, the addiction, Wendy brought up the addiction story with, with so many people that have, you know, gone into the, like the, the, the AA sort of group, they, they absolutely say that once addicted, you're always addicted and they identify as an addicted person. And you said something during the talk there where we don't have to identify as being addicted. You know, the, we don't have to say, you know, oh, I have an addictive person. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from people. Like, right. I have an addictive personality. I'm addicted. I have, I'm addiction. I have addiction. I have addiction. You know, it's that identity that we, we place on ourselves. And we're not addicted personalities. We're infinite consciousness flowing through a physical mind-body complex. We, we can do anything, right? Tap right. into the source. Tap into the um, yeah. divinity and 
all things are possible. Anything right. is possible. And we both, I know we both acknowledge that the 12-step program through AA and NA has helped millions of people. Oh, millions. And millions. they do label themselves as an addict or an alcoholic, mm -hmm. which I disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not knocking their ways. It's worked up to this point. But like you mm -hmm. said, we're at a place in time where healing is available through so many modalities. I, I mean, we are embodying the integration of our right and left brain into one. I we are using science to bridge the gap between, like I say, science is the language of, of the physical, but quantum physics is the language of the metaphysical. So all the things that were metaphysical woo-woo are now being explained by non-locality and entanglement and energy. And, you know, it's all being explained by the most tested science in the history of humanity, which is quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So we can change with what we have available and what we've learned. We need to change the language in describing ourselves to get out of that addictive trap of being labeled as an addict. I just read a comment on um, YouTube. Kathy says, thank you for doing what you do, Jeff. God sends me to your show tonight. Um, I'm going to cry again. Anyway, I didn't cry too much during the two-hour yeah, session no, that we've no. had tonight. But, yeah, you've got, a, you've got a few fans from this conversation and um, you are doing extraordinary work. Love you big time. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, yeah, so just for people who want to find out more about this, Go to mindfulpresence.org -E and you can see more about Jeff there. You can also donate if you've uh, been loving, uh, donate to the Nonprofit Foundation if you've been loving Jeff's teaching tonight. And uh, darling one, I think we've come to the end of the show. Oh, well, it feels wonderful. And I really thank you for doing what you're doing and everybody here for joining us and having an open mind and an open heart. And it is contagious. I mean, we, we think about contagion as negative, but there is positive contagion and coherence is, is, is contagious. So if we become coherent, it's contagious to people around us and we can spread that throughout humanity. And, and that's how we make the change. Absolutely. Critical mass. Yannette said, so good. So good, Jeff. So good. Lots of thank yous. Yeah. Just you can all unmute your, unmute your mic and say thanks to Jeff. And Shirley, did we? Did you have a question? I think it was just a comment. I don't know if we missed it. Comments, just uh, soaking it all in, loving it. Um, Thank you. Right on. Yeah. Well, as as with any journey, it'll continue to integrate over the days and weeks ahead. And and when things come up in your consciousness, feel free to reach out. I, I, I enjoy this very very much. Um, I've never been more comfortable in my own skin following this Joel Soul's journey. Um, mm -hmm. I'm finally who I'm meant to be, I feel like, and I love doing it. And it's uh, every comment is reward paid in full. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're such a brilliant teacher and, and you're teaching in a way that we can bring this information like you're bringing it into uh, pediatric, you know, into hospitals. And, and uh, that's why I connected you to um, Scarlett because she's bringing this same conversation and science and techniques into schools. And, yes. yeah, we're just, you know, to bring it into 
the mainstream and that's what I love about your work you're you're talking like I say you're explaining what the rishis have been talking about for thousands of years in a way that the secular western mind the scientific mind that sort of likes to judge and criticize and say oh that woo-woo crap you know you can like bring the conversation where it doesn't sound like such woo-woo crap anymore and that's really important especially to the western mind that's kind of yeah thank you thank you and just coalescing that's all we can do is be in that center and coalesce so thank you everybody my heart and love goes out to you all and we're a coherent total greater than the sum of our parts we're entangled forever oh (laughs) thank you so much jeff very illuminating and i love the fact that you you don't you know uh, everyone says you have to really dig into your trauma and then heal it and I, I just don't feel that way. I feel that somehow what you said, you, you have to go on and maybe breathing is such an essential, basic, essential way to do it. That it well, I'm glad it, re- yes. And I'm glad that resonates with your truth meter, your heart and your oh, connection okay. to the yes, soul. So that's, that's how we know truth. Yeah. And I just want a, a shout out to the people that have been watching our, live on YouTube. Paul, great stuff, he says. Thanks. you. Thank you both very much. Mm, I appreciate that so much.